no one ever really talked to me at all about depression, suicidal thoughts, anything that, that felt like. So I felt so alone in all of it. And truly, I, I didn't even know that what I was battling had a name and that it was called depression, that like it was a serious and, and medical illness that I was battling. I just truly believed that I was a mistake, that I shouldn't have existed, and the world would be better off without me. Hey, welcome back to Normalize the Conversation. Today, I'm here with Sam Eaton. Sam is an author, speaker, and founder of Recklessly Alive, a suicide prevention organization springing towards a world with zero deaths by suicide. Sam has spoken at over 100 events throughout the U.S. sharing his story of battling depression and suicidal thoughts. Sam's first book, Recklessly Alive, What My Suicide Attempt Taught Me About God and Living Life to the Fullest, was released in January 2021 and reached the top 200 best-selling books on Amazon. Sam, you are amazing. Thank you so much for joining me today. I am so excited to learn more about you and have this conversation. How are you really? Oh, you're so kind. Thanks for having me. You know, honestly, I'm doing so great. Like one of the things about battling mental health and having some really big lows is it really helps you appreciate when life is good and life's just good right now. I am so happy to hear that. And you are a hundred percent right when you have the lows and you've gone through those lows so many times, you really do appreciate the good and the ups and the highs a lot more than I think most people can understand and realize because when you haven't been so low, it's hard to understand what that's like and how lucky you can be to get those highs. Absolutely. I'm jumping right in. I would love to learn more about your mental health journey. Absolutely. It's been, it's been a long one. It's been, uh, some, uh, as we mentioned, low, low times. Um, well, I had a tough, tough, upbringing. Um, My dad was an alcoholic. And as a result of that disease, he just caused a lot of pain in my life. Uh, When I would come home from school, I never knew if it was going to be like a laughy, jokey day or like a chair throwing day. And so as a kid, my life was just super tumultuous. And I was kind of the peacemaker, just trying everything I could to keep people from being angry or exploding. Um, and I, I kept it together pretty well, through, even through middle school. Um, my dad left when I was 12. I haven't really seen him since. Um, but I had straight A's. I was on the basketball team. Like from the outside, no one would have any clue how much uh, struggle there was at home and other places. When I got to high school, however, though, about age 14 or so, things really started to fall apart. Um, I couldn't concentrate anymore. My grades tanked to C's and D's. I quit all the sports that I had played. Um, I started really just hiding in video games and isolating myself and truly just hated who I was. I used to write on my papers over and over again. I hate my life. I hate my life. I hate my life. Um, And nobody really knew. Um, I talked to a therapist in middle school like one or two times. um, And then I just kind of got dropped and I never really tried again. No one ever really talked to me at all about depression, suicidal thoughts, anything that, that felt like. So I felt so alone in all of it. And truly, I, I didn't even know that what I was battling had a name and that it was called depression, that like it was a serious and, and medical illness that I was battling. I just 
truly believed that I was a mistake, that I shouldn't have existed, and the world would be better off without me. And it wasn't, I mean, not every day was like that, right? It's like we talked about already. It's like your life, everybody's life has highs and lows, and there were seasons that were much better. I went off to college and, and it had some good times and also some, some struggling times. Uh, following college, things really hit rock bottom. I'd always had some kind of low-level passive suicidal thoughts, things like, gosh, I don't want to exist, or, you know, like I just said, things, the world would be better off without me. But for the first time in my life, those things started moving towards more active and more thoughts of how and um, now I know that that's like, that's the brain's alarm system, right? That that's your brain telling you it's time to go get help. But I didn't, I didn't know that then. And so about 23, after I graduated, I moved back home into this house where all this trauma had happened. So all this is rising back up. It was my first year teaching and I hated my job. It was so stressful. I was working 60, 70 hours a week, making terrible money. I had tons of student loans. I'd gone through a breakup of this person in college that I just really, really loved. And um, I was trying to cope with it by just going out to the bars and partying because that's what you have to do in your 20s to have friends, or at least that's what I believed. Uh, and all of that just made everything worse. Uh, finally, uh, I actually picked Christmas Day as my planned day. Um, I thought it would be, I was actually thinking of my family that it would be a hard day for them already. So I, I, even in the planning, I was trying to be selfless and, and my brain was so twisted to be honest, that I, I truly believed that my family was better off without me. And I, I was hard to be around because of my mental illness. I was really irritable. I wasn't very kind. So I, I saw the burden that my journey had taken. And I truly, I truly believed it would be better off without me. And I thankfully decided to stay um, after a really, really tough day of wrestling with it. Um, I even started counting backwards from 10 um, at one point. And so the next day I woke up, I mean, emotional ability somewhat restored, um, immediately already wanting to use all the pain I had experienced for good. That was like, immediately I was like, I want to do something with all this to help people. But I never have had like that instant, oh, I'm just better moment. It's become a lifelong battle. My depression has been persistent. Um, I've had great, great seasons. And even just as of last year, had a really tough season with COVID and lockdowns and things. Um, so it's been a lifelong battle. And sometimes I even forget, right? <laughs> like I forget how much I've come through and how much I've survived. Um, but it's it's been a journey, but it, it, it is so fun now to use all of that and try to make somebody else's journey just a little bit better. First of all, Thank you so much for being so open and vulnerable and sharing your story because there are so many pieces that I think a lot of people can relate to. But I really want to touch on what you said about depression being a lifelong journey. That is one of the biggest misconceptions that depression kind of you heal and it goes away and that's it. And that's not true. When it is a disorder, when it's a mental illness, it doesn't just go away forever. It is something that you will battle on and off. And like you said, there are better seasons. You might feel great for a long period of time, but you still may struggle later on. And that's normal and that's okay. And I think that people who feel like they healed from depression, they healed themselves, everything's good. And then all of a sudden, you know, they start to decline. They feel like a failure. And it really increases that feeling of hopelessness and helplessness. So I'm really happy that you brought that piece up because I think that's just something we tend to not talk about. 
Absolutely. And everybody has mental health, right? You don't have to have a mental illness to be taking care of your mental health, but 100%. And it, it gets harder and harder each. It's almost like a relapse is what it feels like to me. Perhaps maybe so like someone who's had an addiction. I haven't, but I do. I feel like, okay, we're back here with my family and friends and like, oh, we're going through this again. But the good news is, right, like we developed that toolbox, right? That's, that's why I can able to do better is we develop those things. We make those relationships. We figure out those patterns and things that help us and pull us out quicker. Exactly. Those tools that we gather along the way are so helpful. And it's really frustrating that we don't learn these earlier in life. We tend not to learn them until we desperately need them. That's like you're getting ready to build a house. You're in the middle of it. You have the nails and you don't have a hammer. Like it, you needed a hammer before you started building the house. Absolutely. You need these tools before you start to struggle. So how did you develop the tools that you needed? Mm, yeah, just trial and error. <laughs> just, just lots of, I mean, I say that. And so, so like kind of this question really when I was thinking about taking my own life was, have you really given life everything you've got? That was the, it wasn't like audible or anything weird like that, but it was just this feeling as I was really thinking about this, Sam, have you really tried everything you can to heal, to get better, to live the life that you want to live and to change these things that you don't like about yourself? And the answer was no. The answer was I had really just kind of been sitting around feeling bad for myself instead of doing the hard work of paying off my student loans and paying, uh, working on my fitness and my nutrition. So Exercise has probably been the biggest one. I go for at least a walk every single day, um, as well as some strength training a few times a week. Um, that just really keeps my emotions kind of steady. Um, nutrition's a part of it for sure. Surrounding myself with people who accept and support my mental health. I've got lots of good friends. And then I've got some friends who I still keep in contact with. I haven't cut them out, but they're not the type of people who can ride the highs and lows with me. And those are the people that I, I need. Um, learning out how to advocate for myself. That's a huge one. Just asking for that help that I need, being willing to say to someone, I'm struggling so hard. Can you just help me come do laundry or something to that effect? Takes so much vulnerability, but can just totally turn a day around. And then therapy, talk therapy has been a huge part of my journey. I really had to process some of that trauma as hard as it was. I didn't enjoy therapy at all. It was so hard to go somewhere every week and talk about these most painful things that I just stuffed down, but kind of like rubbing a bruise, it got worse at first and then slowly has gotten better along with like my self-talk and boundaries. And there's just so much, I believe everyone can benefit from therapy. So that anyway, that's a few of the things in my toolbox now. You have so many things in your toolbox, and I think that is key. We tend to, when we think about coping mechanisms, I think especially in the beginning, we try to find one thing that works. And it's so hard to find just one thing because if it doesn't work next time, then you feel so defeated. And it's like, nothing works. That's it. My coping tool doesn't work. I can't get better. I'm not going to get better. So I just love how you brought up so many different coping tools or in tools in your to toolbox, but the range of them as well, because there are things that you do just by yourself, whether it's exercise, nutrition, just going for that walk, setting boundaries, that's very internal, but then relying on people, being able to talk to people, advocate, go to therapy. So there's a lot that's internal, a lot that's just you and physical, and then a lot that involves people 
And having that range is so important. So you mentioned that you weren't a big fan of therapy at first because it was difficult. What helped you start to kind of connect with therapy and find some benefit into it? Oof, it was so hard. I mean, probably number one that nobody had told me was speed date a little bit, like go and meet with four or five different people and find someone who connects with just like anything else. You need someone who both you feel connected to and is going to help. So I, I spent and kind of wasted some time on money on some people who they were good therapists. They just weren't the right person that I needed at that time. And no therapist is perfect by any means. Um, really committing to it. The, the best therapy process I had, I said, okay, I'm going to give this a year. Every single week, I'm going to go. I'm not quitting. Even when I feel like quitting, I'm doing this every week. I'm going to get everything I can out of it for one year. And then I'm going to step back. I'm going to feel, and I told that to my therapist. I was very clear from the beginning. Um, and that, that was key too, because there were many times that I was like, I'm not sure I'm getting anything out of this. It's so expensive. There were a lot of barriers to that. But those things just take time. They just take time. And having someone, the other key is, being willing to go to therapy, maybe when you're not at your absolute lowest, right? It's like sometimes the best time to make progress is not when you're barely functioning because I've been there. It's when you're feeling a little bit better so that you have that relationship in case things get really tough again. You've got someone who already kind of gets you and knows your story and you can go back to that person throughout your life if you need to. That is 100% true. That's so much helpful tips. First of all, like speed dating, trying to find a therapist that works for you. Because I've heard way too many times people try a therapist, it doesn't work for them, it's not the right connection. And they say, well, therapy doesn't work for me. I tried, it doesn't work, that's it. I can't do therapy, nothing helps me. And I think that learning that it's okay to try out different therapists, you may not connect with the first five, to be completely honest. Mm -hmm. It is hard to find people you connect with. Most people don't marry the first person they date. 100%. It's hard, but you will find someone that is right for you. And it's okay to ask the therapist questions and interview them, just like they're interviewing you to make sure you're the right patient for them. And it's okay to have specific demographics that you're looking for. For me personally, I prefer talking to a female. That's what makes me more comfortable. So when I'm looking for a therapist, I am looking for a female. That's okay. I think a lot of people feel that they can't specify and pick and choose what they want. But if you know you're going to connect better with someone, that's okay. And that's who you should be looking for because it's about getting that benefit. 100%. And more and more, there's so many more options, right? Especially online therapy is becoming huge. So you can meet with people from all over the world and truly find that person, um, that I love what you said about feeling comfortable. That's probably the most important part. And then the other piece is you only have to talk about what you feel comfortable talking about. You don't have to go in there the first day and talk about everything. You can just say, I'm not ready to talk about that. And you can really steer and drive that bus. And hopefully over time, you'll feel more comfortable to, to kind of go there. Exactly. And I found it so interesting that you said in the beginning, you weren't a big fan of therapy. Because for me, I was polar opposite. I love to talk. I love to talk about myself. So going to therapy, um, there's a show, Desperate Housewives, where this one character, Gabby, goes to therapy and she's like, I love it. It's like a talk show all about me. And that's (laughs) how I feel about therapy. I'm so excited when I get to go to therapy. But I think that 
understanding that sometimes you might be super excited to go to therapy and sometimes you might not want to go. It might be really hard in the beginning. It might feel easy in the beginning and then get hard as you go through deeper conversations and you dive deeper into your trauma and your emotions and what you're going through and understanding that it's all normal. It's all okay. Absolutely. So now jumping over through your mental health journey, this led to a book called Recklessly Alive, What My Suicide Attempt Taught Me About God and Living Life to the Fullest. So walk me through that transition from struggling to writing a book and then going out and speaking. So in and around the attempt, I've only ever told two people in the whole world that I'd felt suicidal and only one of those two that I had even thought about attempting. So I just, even through that, kept this completely inside, didn't tell my family. Um, About 18 months after that, when I was doing so much better, I took a trip. I signed up to play in a band all across Africa. So we went to Zimbabwe for six weeks. While I was in Zimbabwe, we were just kind of dreaming. And I said, I want to write a book. I've always wanted to write a book. And so I got home and I started writing and I thought it was just going to be like funny short stories of my life, which I had been writing a blog at that point that was getting some attention and that's basically what it was. And instead the story of my suicide attempt came out in about three hours, just that afternoon, that chapter is actually still in the book, but I truly realized I couldn't tell my story without telling the worst parts of it. And so I still was not publicly sharing this, but I processed and come to find out now there's research that one of the best things you can do when you've been through a lot of trauma or hard things is to write out your story because you get to frame it exactly how it happened to you. And no one can tell you that's not how you're not remembering that, right? That's not what happened. It's, it's your story and you can own it. So there was absolutely a healing part. It took seven years to get it out into the world. I wrote three different versions of it. The first version was really for me. And then I was like, okay, it's the world's not about me. I want to use my story to help other people. And I tried to get it published for a long time. It truly was just a long, a long journey, but I'm so, I'm just so proud of it. There's a faith element as I was wrestling to so much with that's how I grew up in, in processing Christianity to it. It's not, it's not a preachy book by any means. Um, one of my favorite reviews is someone who says I'm an atheist and this book absolutely helps me. Um, but there is that element, but it, uh, it came out last January of 2021. It kind of had a little ripple. Um, it got some attention, but I was in a dark place with all the lockdowns again and all of our things we had planned to promote it got all shut down. Then finally in January, I was like, I'm a, or, uh, sorry, in June, I was like, I'm going to get on TikTok. It's what all the kids are doing. Um, like, I'm trying to be young and <laughs> relevant. And uh, my fifth video got 4.4 million views. The book sold. It jumped up into the top 200 selling books on all of Amazon overnight um, and was there for a few weeks, hit number one in a bunch of categories which meant so much to me because so many publishers kept telling me no one wants to read a book about suicide, especially a book that has to do with Jesus or church and suicide. And then it was the number one Christian book there for a few weeks. So it's been a crazy road, but I'm just so proud of it and so proud that people have seen and felt connected to the journey that I've had. First of all, wow. I can't believe I mean, I can believe it, though, that people would say, oh, people don't want to read about this because people don't want to talk about mental health. And that's why we don't have these conversations, because there's assumption that people don't want to talk about what they're going through, their vulnerabilities, the moments that they perceive to be weakness. It's not weakness, but it's what they perceive within them. So they don't 
want to talk about it. So then when someone wants to, people do tend to push back. I love how that didn't stop you, though, from releasing the book. It didn't stop you from sharing your story because you are helping so many people. Every time someone reads your book or reads a blog post or sees one of your social media posts or just anything about your journey and your struggles and the good and the bad and how you've overcome it, it provides hope and ability to connect. So many people are struggling and they just don't talk about it because they've never had the opportunity. And then they feel so alone to know someone else has struggled and they've gotten through it and they still struggle sometimes, but they're still going, I think is the best piece of hope that we can offer to someone. So from on behalf of everyone that you're helping, thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. And I, you know, as I think about suicide prevention and my role in it, I don't, I don't know, you know, people ask me all the time, well, how do we change this? I've got some ideas, but my biggest one is just what you just said. Let's get stories out there. I think 14 year old Sam, the best thing anyone could have done was just stand up in front of him and said, Hey, your life might get here, but there's help. There's hope. Here's what you're going to do. Here's a number you can call. Here's how you're going to get through this and you're going to be okay. And look at all of the great things that happened to me once I made that choice to stay. First of all, I keep saying, first of all, (laughs) I'm noticing that's now a trend. Um, But yes, going back to the kid inside you who is struggling. And if you had had this guide, if you had had this information, these resources, the knowledge that someone else has struggled and gone through it and what they've done to overcome it is so helpful. And it's frustrating sometimes, at least for me, when I look back and I'm like, If only someone had this conversation with me and I knew it was going to get better because when you go through life feeling like it's never going to get better, it just weighs down on you. Did you ever feel like it was impossible? Oh, all the time. Even, even within the last year, I have felt that way. And I think everyone would agree that they felt that way at some point. And the, the moment it changed for me that I started wanting to do more of this work was I read that talking about suicide doesn't make it any more likely that someone will attempt. In fact, it makes it much more likely that they'll seek help. So once I knew that that's what the research shows, and I'm not going to make it worse, I'm not going to be the reason that someone attempts, um, then I was like, all right, let's go. It's going to be scary, and it's going to be hard to share this story, but it's going to be worth it because we just, we have to normalize the conversation and just be willing to go there. Exactly. Normalize the conversation. Um, so now let's jump into you speaking. So what was it? What was that first time that you shared publicly about your story? And how did you feel doing it? Man, I, I am a quiet, introverted person, like my happy place is 8pm in bed watching Law and Order. Um, so the fact, like if, if you told younger Sam, I was going to be standing on stages in front of thousands of people telling about the worst day of my life, he would be like, I was so terrified, but, um, and I, I don't wake up every speaking event. I'm like, yes, I get to talk about this today. That's, that's not the feeling. Some days it's like that. A lot of times it's not, but I get to see the impact and that's what makes it worth it. My very first events, I started small, my whole journey. People ask like, how do you get started? Maybe they ask me that too. Like, Oh, I want to use my story. How do I get started? Just little small steps, 
behind the scenes, I started working on the book. Then I published one blog post about it that got a lot of people identified with, and it got a lot of attention. Then we filmed a three minute video of my story. I hired a few friends of mine to make this video. That video got a lot of attention. So then a friend of mine asked, hey, do you want to share 10, 15 minutes of your story at my small music events? He was a musician. And so I did that. I just in the middle of his sets, I would just share kind of my battles and how I'd started. And then I started getting invited to like some at-risk teen centers, maybe just like 15 kids. And I did a handful of those, just got some more practice telling the story. And then over time, it's I've just gotten better. I've learned more about how to help other people. Um, and then, and, and just hard work. I mean, that's the other piece is that, you know, I've posted on Instagram almost every day for two and a half years. Um, it's just lots and lots of hard work, uh, but it's worth it. It is 100% worth it every day to get up and make a difference. It is. And yes, yeah, starting small. I think that people look at other people who've been doing it for a long time and how far they've come with it. And they want to just jump into that point. And it does take a lot of work, a lot of time and trust because you might not get positive responses every time, especially not in the beginning, because the first time someone who doesn't know you struggled, hears that you struggled, it can be hard for them to hear it. It can be hard for them to imagine. It can be hard for them to hear that you were going through something and they didn't know and they couldn't support. Then you have other people who just like to comment and be mean behind a screen. So it's trusting that it's going to help people and knowing that there's an impact and seeing it in people's faces and imagining it when you can't see their faces, I think is so helpful. So I'm really happy you shared that. So you said you don't always feel too excited. Do you ever feel nervous to stand on stage? That's the funny part. No, not at this point. And I I mean, I've done it a hundred times at this point. Of course, in the beginning, I was very, very nervous. Um, Now I'm I'm not. I'm really proud of how hard I have worked to give this talk. Um, And I have a few different versions, but I I am not. I'm not nervous to share this anymore. I, I... And I think that's because I've seen the impact. I've done so many events. I get to hug so many people, even families who've lost someone who say, oh gosh, now I kind of have a better understanding of what my loved one was feeling. Um, And and yeah, maybe that, maybe that means that uh, I'm on the right track that I, that I don't get nervous anymore, but um, truly I, I, I just enjoy it now. It does get easier the more you do it, but yeah, it's okay to get nervous in the beginning. And I think that's something everyone needs to hear because when you're ready though, do -hmm. not have to speak up before you're ready or if you never want to, that's completely okay. But when you are ready to, and if you are ready to, and you feel nervous, that doesn't mean it's not the right time. It's just normal to have some nerves and it does get easier and better over time. And some of that pushback is because you're fighting the stigma, right? It's like there are people who are perpetuating the mental health stigma. When I, then my video came out and like you just said, I mean, I spent, I don't know, five years working on this behind the scenes before I was really out telling the world about it. Lots of therapy to process it, but I'm a teacher. I've been teaching in the public schools for 12 years 
And uh, when that video came out, we had a parent who called my boss and said, are you mentally stable? Should you be allowed in a classroom? And the video literally is just like, hey, I went through this when I was 23. I'm doing great now. I hope you get help. And at first I was, I was really, I was like, oh, I, I thought about quitting, right? Like that's my first instinct. I was like, this is going to affect my livelihood, my income. And then I doubled down. I was like, but imagine being his kid. Imagine being so upset that someone's sharing their mental health journey that you have to call and basically attack him. Um, and you have, you don't have the maturity and understanding of mental health. And I was like, oh, he's the reason I need to keep going. We, these are the people who need the message. Um, if we're going to really change change that in our culture. Yes. And recognizing that their kid is not going to be able to talk about it because their parents are perpetuating that stigma because they don't want to have those conversations at home. So by having it in the classroom, by bringing speakers in and talking about it, you are the first people to give these kids the opportunity to know that they're not alone and it's okay in situations where the parents don't or can't. And that can make all the difference in youth's mental health. Yes. So when you're speaking at schools, do you ever talk about ways to talk about it to someone else who might be struggling? Yeah, absolutely. So I always share, okay, this is what you're going to do if, if it ends up being you, right? Call the suicide prevention line, right? It's an anonymous line. Anyone can Google it. You can call it at any time if you need that you know, make healthy choices right away, get around people who you can talk to, um, take care of yourself and just know those feelings will pass. They've always passed for me. I've been there so many times, but they they've passed and you'll get through it. The hard part is, okay, what do you do if someone tells you if someone shares or, you know, how do you react or how do you express concern if you're feeling, feeling that maybe someone might be that. So number one is I just challenge everyone to be brave when it comes up if it, if, and when it comes up naturally, be willing to go there. So maybe that is like, oh, there's a new Netflix show that talks about this. Hey, have you seen this? Have you ever felt that way? Do you know someone who's willing, who's ever felt that way? And just let this be a thing that people openly talk about so that maybe five years down the road, they do have that. And they have this just, it's normalized. It's something that we're willing to talk about. They also did an analysis of 75 million texts from one of the suicide prevention text lines and they found the best way to bring it up is to express it as concern so something like this is a directly quote from them it says sometimes when people go through a breakup they may have thoughts of ending their life i just want to check in you seem super low have you had any of these thoughts and it's just sharing it that that way it doesn't have to be this big scary thing and they might just say no right like gosh no i would you know or they might that might be the ticket to kind of opening up. And if they do open up, truly the best gift you can give me when I'm feeling suicidal is just to listen. You can't fix it. Probably nothing you say is going to make it better in that moment, but just to give them an empathetic ear and say, gosh, that is so hard. I'm so sorry. You should not have to be going through this. You shouldn't have to deal with that. I'm here for you. I got you. We're going to keep getting through this. Um, And just being there for them. And on that side, knowing that it can't be all up to you. This takes a team of people. So including other people, if that's, if it's a younger person, maybe their parents or their family, someone at school. Um, but you should never try to be this one person for anyone, even trained therapists, 
have help. They have a team of people who are supporting them. So if someone shares, don't feel like, oh gosh, I can't tell. I got to keep this a secret. Just, just be clear to them. You know, we need to bring other people in on this. I love you. And I want you to get better. That is amazing advice. And going back to what you said about asking someone if they're having thoughts of suicide, like on the crisis um, text lines, it's okay to be direct. I don't know if people know that, but it's okay to ask somebody. You're not putting the thoughts in their head. You're not causing them to think about it now. You're giving them the chance to know that it's okay if they are and you're interested in knowing because you want to be there and you want to help them find the right support. You may not be the right support for them. You might be a listening ear that lets them know if they're not alone. And that's okay. You don't have to be that full support system for them, like you said, but helping them find a support system that works for them, that helps them, in my opinion, is one of the most powerful things you can do for someone who's struggling. Absolutely. Just like you would if they were experiencing something with their physical body, right? You'd want to connect them to the right doctor. You don't want them to be sick. Our brains can get sick too. And we just have to um, be willing to tell people that. Exactly. I love that, that your brains can get sick. Your brain can get sick. I say that all the time and people look at me funny. They're like, but your brain's not sick. And I'm like, it is. That's why I personally like the word mental illness because you will say physical illness and won't get a stigma from that. Mm -hmm. So normalizing that it is an illness, it's being sick and that you can and deserve to get help and support. You're not afraid when you have a cold to go to the doctor. So when you are struggling emotionally, mentally, it's okay to reach out to another type of doctor. Just like if you break your arm, you're not going to be like, oh, I can't go to orthopedic. I don't want anyone to know you're a hundred percent right it's so funny how people don't want to talk about it in my opinion because it seems like it should be so normal but when we first connected we had this amazing conversation on words used to discourage suicide and I think that's a big part of the stigma is people don't know what to say and they think that kind of guilting or shaming is the right approach. So what is your feelings and opinions on words you should not say and words you should say to help someone in that moment? Absolutely. Someone who's battling this, right? We just said your mind is sick. They're already attacking themselves and they probably already feel guilty and bad about who they are and how they feel. So any sort of judgment or even like quick fixes, like those, those, we want to jump. It's things are going to get better. You're going to be like, we just want to jump in. But for me, when I've been so depressed, those things actually, they're worse because they're like, I, they don't, they just don't feel real. They don't feel insincere. So I, I guess, first of all, then you're going to be, I guess what I'm feeling is like, well, then I, well, I can't say anything. Well, no, just try your best to do. Don't, don't try to fix it um, in that way. And don't try to judge or diminish what they're feeling like, oh, it won't be like, it, 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 uh, just make it small. Um, try and just, yeah, be that listening support. Um, what, what things have helped you or what things have you seen that have helped well, I want to say that the it's get it gets better for me was very frustrating because it's like, well, how do you know? How do you know it's going to get better? You don't know what I'm feeling right now inside. I can't even put it into words. So how do you know it's going to get better? For me, it's more of, 
I love you. And I still love you. Even when you feel like this, even when you're on the floor crying, I'm not walking out of this room. I will sit here as long as you want me to sit here. If you want me to leave and you truly want me to leave and you're not just saying it superficially to test me, I will leave. But just that conversation, knowing that you're still loved and important and worthy, even in the worst times, because for me, when I'm falling apart, I usually just feel like I'm not good enough. I don't deserve to be here. No one loves me. And I'm just this burden. So for me, it's a reminder that I'm still loved. What has been the most helpful one for you? That really, really tracks. Um, Yeah. Any sort of like we language, right? Like that, like you just said, but you know, we're going to get through this, right? We're going to keep fighting through this. Um, Sometimes offering to do practical things. It's very rare that I will accept those things, but just, you know, instead of saying, I'm here, if you need me saying, Hey, I'm going to pick you up food. What would you like? Or or kind of helping those practical things are really, really helpful for me. Um, Checking in just, Hey man, thinking of you here for you. My experience was even, and I thought when I started talking more openly about my suicidal thoughts, that more people would press in. And the truth is, most of my experiences are people step out in the worst moments. And even one of the people I was closest to in the whole world said to me after a really rough patch, we knew where you were struggling, but we didn't know what to say and didn't know what to do. So we didn't do anything. And I think that 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 says a lot and no shame to that person, but keep trying, just try something, right? Try something. And you can ask them, right? Hey, what, what helps you? Have you found anything that helps, right? It's, there's no one size fit all to any of this. It's all just trial and error and everyone's different and everyone's mental illness is different. Um, But yeah, including them with that we language, asking them questions, offering to do practical things and just, just loving them the best you can and caring for yourself too. It's not easy. It's not hard. uh, It's not easy to love someone who feels this way, but um, just be there for them. It's number one. Exactly. Just being there. And I loved what you said about doing something practical. Yesterday, my anxiety was at an all-time high. I FaceTimed my grandma and I was just like, looked like I was dying. My eyes couldn't open. My, I just looked terrible. And she came over and made me food. She was like, I don't know if you've eaten today. I don't know if you want to eat, but here's food. And then she just like lay down with me. And she didn't even have to say anything. She didn't, she might not have known what to say. She might not have known what questions to ask, but she made sure that I knew I wasn't alone and that even food, I did not want to eat the time I did eat because she made it for me and it made me feel good that she made it and I needed to eat. So I don't think that, I think the practical things you can do for someone is so underestimated or so undervalued. But it really is just being there, doing something. You don't know how to talk. Doing something physical, tangible can be so helpful as well. But like you said, just being there. Absolutely. So before we wrap up, what do you think is the best piece of advice you could give to someone who's struggling right now? Don't believe everything that your brain tells you. That truly was the turning point for me and understanding that suicidal thoughts and depression 
is it's you're warping reality. You are not seeing things as they really are. And the best analogy I can come up with is like someone who's battling anorexia. It's an eating disorder where maybe somebody doesn't eat for long periods of time. And I've heard stories of people in treatment and they might be 60 or 70 pounds. They're wasting away. It's a deadly, it's a deadly eating disorder. And they'll look in the mirror and they'll say, I am fat. That is what suicidal thoughts are like. You are not feeling the love and the hope of your friends and family. Your brain is truly, truly warped um, into these lies and has kind of spiraled to a place um, and made it hard to do the things um, that will make you feel better. So first and foremost, just recognizing that not, not everything your brain is telling you is truth and is reality. And then being willing to take little actions to help yourself feel better because the last thing you want to do is get up. Sometimes just getting out of bed is the hardest thing in the world. So forcing yourself to just do one little thing every single day, whether that's just one load of laundry, it's one 10 minute walk, just take those little steps that are going to get you to where you want to be and get you back to the place where you're, you're functioning in a better way. Sam, that is amazing advice. How can people connect with you? I am uh, recklesslyalive.com is where you can find out more information about my speaking and my book. My book's also on Amazon, Recklessly Alive, Sam Eaton. And then I am at Recklessly Alive on Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook. Sam, you are absolutely amazing. Thank you so much for joining me today. I just enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. And thanks for everything you're doing for your generation.